Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. We are back in the Detroit is Different studios. I'm here, Kari Frazier. With one of my big homies, uh, I always talk about my mentors and people I look up to as big homies. So the way I accept mentors is just I look at them, do different things, and I'm amazed with their story, their energy, their presence. A lot of it is just their presence of mind when they sit and they talk to me because I still really see myself in a lot of ways as the kid that grew up on this block on Clement Street. And I have someone I look up to for years. He's always encouraging, always full of good energy, always full of good laughs, and also a heck of a blues man himself. Luther Keith, how you feeling today? I'm great, Kari, and great to be here in the Detroit of Different Studio. It's an awesome thing you got going on here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, to do projects like this, you know, obviously, uh, people like you with what you do with Arise Detroit, uh, what you've done with family, what you've done with all types of projects, you're like the inspiration to say, okay, if he can do that, I guess I can do something like this. Well, you know, uh, I take that to heart, Kari. You know, like I say, I, I'm just a, I'm just a guy with one liberal arts degree, so you aren't going to find me. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I think really, you know, it's about passion and believing and working. And uh, I've been very blessed to, along the journey of life, to have a lot of opportunities to find people and uh, and be passionate about what you uh what you what you believe in, what you do to persevere. Uh, when you get knocked down, get up, keep going, and uh, you know. I, I, and what's the remarkable thing about it is you will find uh, the people and the uh, forces and the energy to direct you uh, to where you want to get to. And so, it's been amazing what I've been able to do on a lot of different levels. Just like my interaction with you, and you come from a great family, you know, and. Uh, uh, I've seen what you, what you, who you are, what you have become, and furthermore, what you are going to continue to do. And it's simply, uh, uh, I'm simply trying to be part of that great uh, stream of life and contribute to it in a positive way. That is mad love, and uh, as always, humble and full of character and cheer. That is the Luther Keith I know. So let's get into some of this story. You and your Detroit story. Um, what led your family or you to come to the city of Detroit? Well. Uh, my family, like so many others, came from the South. Where at? And uh, my family, well, on my father's side of the family, they came from Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And my mother's family came from a little town called Lebanon, which is outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Like Lebanon? Lebanon? It's down there, they call it Lebanon. Lebanon is how you pronounce it. But it's spelled, <laughs> it's spelled like Lebanon, uh, the country, L-A-B-A-N-A-O-N. But it's got the, the area pronunciation for folks is okay. Lebanon. Okay. And it's 20 miles outside of Nashville. There's also, I think, a Lebanon, Ohio, perhaps. But this is called Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, and it's where my family, my mother's family grew up. And uh, my father's from Georgia. My father's, my father's father came up here in the early 1900s or 1920s to work in the auto plants, like so many other black folks did. Mm -hmm. And that's how he came uh, to Detroit. He moved his family. My father was very young. He moved his family to Detroit. My mother came to Detroit in the 40s to work in the defense plants during World hmm. War II. And my father, by this time, was a real estate salesman and met my mother uh, selling her brother a house in Detroit. Ain't, so. ain't that something? So it was like, so your mom was selling your uncle a house. 
Well, my mom was my, my, my mom was actually the, her brother was trying to buy a house. Oh, okay. And, it's, and, it's, and she tells a story to me. My father went over to talk to him and her, her brother and his wife about selling the house oh, okay. and saw my mother. And then said, hey, so the, deal, the deal went bad. So he, he did not come with good negotiation so, skills so at that but, point. But anyway, I got a mother out the deal, so that's not bad. Yes. But to negotiate the, the house, it was like it was like I know I know how to close the deal. Right. Your right. dad was supposed to come in right. as like the the like uh I don't like this rate. Right, right. But uh but uh so that's how my family ended up coming to Detroit. And of course mm-hmm. I still have a lot of relatives down in Tennessee, down Georgia, down south as we all say. But those are the roots and um you know, we came here, and uh, I grew up, uh, first my family, when I was very young, lived on a little street called Northfield, uh, when I was very, very young. Then by the time I was five, we moved over on Columbus Street between Linwood and Lawton, right around the corner of the China Black Madonna, 48206, the zip code. Mm. I went to St. Agnes Elementary School. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my friends who went to public schools went to Northwestern, McMichael. Mm-hmm. And from there, I went to uh, Detroit Cathedral, an all-boys Catholic high school. From there, I went to the University of Detroit, when it was called the University of Detroit, and got a journalism degree and a uh, fortune to get a job. Uh, actually, a lot of people don't know this, but while I was in journalism school, I actually started at the Detroit News. And a lot of folks tell you they started at the bottom. I took This is a true story. I but li- wait, before we even get into that, <laughs> you know I gotta ask some questions about like that's basically like my neighborhood, Linwood. Oh yeah, um, Linwood, Davidson, Dexter, like yeah. these nooks and crannies. Right, right. Uh, you were Linwood and Columbus, yeah. which is uh, blocks away from the rebellion. But yeah. also, uh, that's one of the things brought up. But that's also like right down the street from the original temple the original temple of the nation of islam right uh the headquarters for for the detroit snick was over there shrine of the black madonna shrine of the black madonna was over there yeah. like a mm-hmm. lot of yeah black culture yeah it was in fact and one of the folks that i grew up playing baseball with because he lived on hogarth mm-hmm. and i live in columbus it was fred durhall senior mm. and we grew up playing baseball against each other up in Northwestern Field. Okay, so that that neighborhood then, like, was this the? Uh, I'm guessing this is what what era is this? Like 50s, 60s. This is by this time we're into the 60s, 60s, and well, 60s. When my, the years I was a teenager would have been in the 60s. Okay, and early 70s. What do you remember most about the neighborhood in the 60s? I remember that everybody knew me on my block, and and I knew everybody, mm-hmm. and I could literally go down every house down the street. They knew the whole family. And, of course, I grew up uh, – I played baseball growing up, and we played baseball in the alleys a lot of times. And I don't mm-hmm. know how – I go back to that old neighborhood and say, how the heck did we play baseball in the alley? But that's what we did. We played in the alley. I broke a lot of windows. Uh, we played football in the street. Uh, a lot of great friends. My cousins lived uh, – I lived in a two-family flat. My cousins lived downstairs. We lived upstairs. And uh, just a great time. It's like uh, – uh, it's like – kind of like an urban Andy of Mayberry story. Hmm. That's what it was like. I mean, it was, and of course, no one on the block was rich. I, I think I wrote about this in the past, uh, but no one on the block was rich, but, and we didn't even have a formal block club or youth program, but it was like the whole block was our youth program. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and so everybody cared about, there's a gentleman named Mr. Davis who would uh, take the kids up to the ballpark to play at uh, Highland, uh, in Northwestern Field. There was a family that lived across the alley from us on Montgomery Street, 
and there, Mr. and Mrs. Sparks, and uh, one day we hit the ball in their yard. Instead of getting mad at us like some folks might do, they invited us over to talk to us and got to know us. It turns out they had a farm out in Belleville, and they mm. started taking us kids out to Belleville wow. to the farm. And so it was a, just a warm, loving feeling, and it's the kind of thing that I think one thing we owe all our kids, every kid should be able to say, I had a great childhood. And if, if, if I said before, if a kid can't say I had a great childhood, then we've done that kid a disservice because as a kid, you, you should have a good childhood and have those happy memories to build on and become a become a successful adult. Okay, so the, the childhood, and that's a lot like over here on Clements. Like we would play, not baseball often, we sometimes play baseball, mm-hmm. but you need a lot of people to play baseball. Yeah, you do. So we would play, if we had enough people, we generally would play football. Like we play okay. tackle right. on the grass and touch in the street. Right, right. And then like you'd uh, like play that weird game where like you run down the down the street where a person would have to touch you and then you jump right onto the grass. Okay. And then get tackled. <laughs> so it's like, we like, we do that a whole lot. Right, over here. right, right, and, right. Um, so the 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 recreation was so full because there was so many kids yeah, yeah. over in this neighborhood yeah yeah well you found time. yeah and you found a way to have fun you know you found a way to have fun and like i say we didn't have internet then we didn't have computers mm-hmm. we didn't have video games and uh in a lot of cases we didn't even have a tv or certainly not a color tv and i talk about you know growing up in our in our house uh, when we were not unusual where uh we had four kids and you had one black and white TV. There was no remote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now we can't find a remote. We go crazy. I can't watch TV. But mm-hmm. that's how we all grew up, and that's what we had. And so you kind of made the best of your situation. And, you know, what's the saying go? You can't miss what you never had. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we weren't expecting to have all the highfalutin fancy things that a lot of – but we had – the most important thing we had was a love of our parents and our peers and our, and our relatives and friends. And that love can take you a long way. Okay, and then along with that love, this is I hear so much about some of the 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 stores that were up and down and like the jazz clubs and some of the bowling alleys, yeah, different things like that. But being a blues man yourself, the record stores, it was some record stores throughout the community. There were, of course, at that time, I didn't get into blues so much later, later in life when I was young, I was just playing baseball. But, yeah, there were music stores. Uh, uh, we we had the Linwood Movie Theater on Linwood that I, I could go okay, to. Okay, now that's the first. Uh, <laughs> I've never even heard of. Where was this at? Oh Linwood? yeah, it was. It was before you got to Claremont. Hmm. Maybe it might have been there, but it was the Linwood Theater. You could get in there for, and you could see two movies for like about twenty five cents, if you can believe that. This is back in the sixties. I'm talking about. So 60. was that like the do, the equivalent of the Dollar Show uh, today or something like that? Kind of like that, but you could see two movies uh-huh. for like twenty five. Double cents. feature, yeah, okay. a double feature. I mean, it's of late that you only pay one price and see one movie because when I was growing up, you always saw two movies oh, for okay. one price. Hmm. That was the way it worked. Hmm. Okay, so I'm guessing that if that you would like uh, look up on a quarter and be able to just chill in the movie. Not only that, we go to the store. Around the store was. Uh, was a little we call a penny candy store and mm-hmm. uh uh we they pull out the drawer and they say penny candy and you had a whole bunch of candy and we had like we are little kids and it was penny candy they had a special box just for penny candy and we could buy penny candy and uh, be content hmm. so this is that whole temperature uh brothers and sisters how many brothers and sisters well i had one older sister and uh, uh a younger brother and a younger sister and uh 
they've all uh, been blessed to go on well. We are my parents. My father was a postal clerk, and uh, my my though he was involved in a lot of civil rights, uh, social type of stuff. He ran a a black history program at the time called Negro History, a program called Negro the Negro History Committee that he ran for years growing up. But Hmm. uh, but we were all very uh, fortunate that we were all able to go to college, get degrees. my brother Terrence is now a Wayne County probate judge. Uh, my younger sister Joyce has a PhD and she lives in Raleigh, Virginia. My older sister's retired uh, captain in the military. She retired with her husband to Charlotte, North Carolina. So we've all been very fortunate, blessed to, uh, you know, to, to prosper uh, based on the great support we got. Uh, you know, being raised and having that great family support, which is hmm. irreplaceable. Okay, now education was fluent. Uh, where did your education for your parents stop? Uh, what what was their education? Well, my father, my father just had a high school education. My mother did a did a little college, and my mother actually was a teacher at a one room schoolhouse in Tennessee before she came up here. And I think she had a couple years of college, but but none of them had were able to do what their children did. You know, in terms of mm-hmm. going on and getting advanced degrees. In the case of my brother. A law degree. My sister, my younger sister, got a master's and a PhD, and uh, and my my daughter has even done better than her old man. She's gone to Howard and got a degree in the political science. Gone to Georgetown Law School, got a degree, and is now finishing up a master's of law degree. So, uh, but and I think all of that comes from, you know, it starts at the root. Everything starts at the root. You can't have a tree without a root. And mm-hmm. and I've been blessed uh, as you were have that strong root mm-hmm. and if that's with that strong root anything is possible okay so within that root just what's their what was their personality like um like hanging out with your dad because now as i grow older the relationship with my father changes and uh as my mom passed last year yeah our relationship was changing like being being an adult and having a parent is different than like um when I was a kid, and it's like my parents like telling me, you know, it, it's it, it like shifted. So like, yeah. what was their what was their character well, like? Were they into music? Like no, you? Were not they really. The... No, no, it's re- no, really, it was totally different from the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, we didn't have a car. No one until I was like seventeen because my father had, was health was not the best, so he did not drive. He had to catch the bus. So as a result, we never went out to restaurants for meals and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. My father. Uh, didn't know a thing about sports. I, I don't know if he know differently a football and a baseball. He, you know, we, <laughs> seriously, we never went. He was all the time that I was. His, but he, I don't think he ever saw me play a baseball game. That's oh. all I could do. So it was a very different situation. Oh. My mother, again, we're talking about back in the fifties and the sixties. So we didn't go to clubs. There wasn't like my parents didn't have on music and records. We didn't listen to music in our house other than oh. us turning on kids turn on the radio to listen to some Motown. So I grew up in a situation where. You know those type of things. Then, then my father. You know, I was only twenty three when he passed, so we mm. never had a type of relationship where I like hung out with my father. Yeah. You know, but uh, the time I had with him and the lessons that he taught me uh, has always stayed with me. And what he, what he, among many things he told me is that one of the things that stuck and it may resonate today. He said, "But he said the black, or that he said at the time the color man. You said he was color man." You can't be successful just for you. You have to be successful for other people and bring other people with you. Hmm. And not only that, he said, you have to be twice as good as those other folks. So you've got to be the best at whatever you do. And I tried to instill that as I've moved along and taught journalism and recruited young people for careers in the media. I said, 
you have got to be the best. Be so good they could say, I can't stand Kyrie Frazier, but doggone it, he's the best writer we got. Nothing we can do about it. Okay, and as you talk about that, you said he was doing something with uh, Negro history at the time. Yes, yes. He, he, and this kind of thing, Kyrie, where you don't appreciate it when you're that young. But this is back in the 50s now. Mm-hmm. Black history wasn't that popular. We didn't have, no. you know, and it was called Negro History Week, but somehow yeah, my father. Carter G. Woodson my, started with yeah, the week. Right, and my, eyes right, expanded right. To my father uh, was a converted Catholic, and so. So he got interested in, at the time, Negro History Week, and he would hold these programs every February at the McGregor Conference Center at Wayne State. So I grew hmm. up with this. And he would invite dignitaries a lot of time from uh, clerics from Africa, from various countries in Africa wow. to come here. And he would have the dignitaries from all over the United States, he and his committee, to do these programs on Negro History Week. He had Benjamin Mays come. Are you he, serious? He had Kyle Rowan come. Wow. He had he had people that I can't even tell you who were coming. This is back when it was not popular. Mm. It was not the thing. And we just kind of took it for granted. And so, when, so some of a lot of what you're doing right now with Arise Detroit, you've, you witnessed yeah, the possibilities uh, yeah, of that. And, and not knowing what it would become. But I think in, in an indirect way, subliminally, it affected me. And I'll tell you one story that I that is that kind of resonates with me and because my father would bring these when he passed and go through his papers I find letters from bishops in Africa priests in Africa thanking him for this and that this is and one this is when I was about 10 10 years old or so he had invited a bishop from Africa from the country at the time called Tanganyika to come to our house for dinner hmm. uh his name was Bishop Rugamba he invited him over. My mother cooked an old-fashioned soul food dinner, you know, with the greens, mm-hmm. chicken, fried corn. A year later, now remember I went to Catholic school. I went to St. Agnes. So about a year later in religion class, we are reading about the first African cardinal. So the nuns, we read about it, and I read about it, and I raised my hand and said, Sister, sister, because his name is now Cardinal Lauren Rogamba. You like, hey, and I like said, my Korean and I said, year. and I said, sister, he was at our house. He ate dinner at the house, and the nun said, Luther Keith, Stop don't lying. tell a lie like that in class. <laughs> I never will forget it. And that's, and but of course, I didn't know that. And as I got older, mm-hmm. many people, just like Horace Sheffield Senior. Who's, mm-hmm. You know now, but his father and my father were friends. Wow, that that ran uh, way Daybo, back in way back in the day, which we know uh, uh, Debo, uh, a heck yeah, of an yeah, organization. Yeah, Ed, well, yeah, right. Ed Vaughn's father, Ed hmm. Vaughn, who used to have the bookstore, who now yeah. lives down south. His father and my father had a connection back hmm. in the day. So he was like from that generation. A lot of folks uh, worked with a lot of folks, and like, and see, he worked at the post office. And back in the fifties, black doctors, black lawyers, they couldn't get jobs. They worked at the post office. So he was working with these guys. They couldn't get real work. So these doctors and lawyers were working at the post office till they got their act together. And that's kind of, kind of what he grew up with. But but a lot of this stuff I took for granted. So when I got older, uh, I would run into people and say, man, your father, I work with your father. Your father was a great I, I didn't have a sense of that till I got much older. Wow. Now, as we talk about this, and this is kind of, uh, you, you came in and, and we were talking about uh, Reverend Sampson mm-hmm. uh, and Reverend Sampson had right. a program, uh, right. Frida, uh, right. my friends, and right. I work with Frida right. uh, with the Black Coffee Podcast. Make right. sure you come out, support us on that. But May 19th is an event in honor of him. Mm-hmm. And we're always talking about his library. 
Right. What were some of the books your dad was reading? How was he getting this information about history? Well, sure. You know, I, I don't even know. I, I, I just know that he was very, uh, he must have been read. I don't know. I didn't see the books, but he was very learned, very knowledgeable hmm. in uh, educating himself through interaction with a lot of people. And um, it was just a passion that he had. And mm. I don't know why, because, again, it was not popular. You know, Negro History Week and all that stuff mm -hmm. was not even popular. It was not even fashionable. But you know that's what we grew up with, and uh, it stuck with me. And indirectly, I think uh, it's rubbed off to me in a lot of ways that have uh, exhibited themselves in my own life. Okay. On the flip side, your mom. What was uh, what was your mom's uh, day to day? What was well, her my character? mother was well, my mother was a housewife for the most part, but she was the secretary of the organization. Huh. So she was a secretary, so and she was sending in all the letters. The and media, reading all yeah, the letters right. And... She was organizing all the rest of that, and uh -huh. then. Uh, she got uh, once we once we got uh, out of high school. Then she went to work, and she worked for many years for the uh, Wayne County Friend of the Court, hmm. uh, processing uh, checks for the Wayne County Friend of the Court. And so that was, and she worked for them for a long time. But she again uh, sold me so many great stories, and I have great memories of her, you know, holding me in her arms and telling me nursery rhymes and. One story, if you indulge me just for a moment, uh, that I tell today about what's going on in Detroit today. But she told me it when I was like five years old. I never dreamed I would be telling it. But one day she told me the story about the chicken that baked the bread. And a lot of people know it as a red hen story, but my mother taught it to me as chicken that baked the bread. And it goes like this, that one day the chicken got up in the barnyard and wanted to say it was a nice sunny day. said, uh, it's a nice day. I, I want to I bake some bread, but I wonder who will help me bake some bread. So she went around the barnyard and started asking some of the other animals to help her. She asked the horse. The horse said, no, I got some hay. I don't want to help bake no bread. She asked the barnyard dog, said, no, I got, I'm chasing squirrels. And she asked the cow. The cow said, no, I'm chewing my cud. And the hog and the hog said, I got some good slop. I don't want to bake no bread. So she said, well, she got depressed. She went back to the little chicken coop, said, I guess I had to bake the bread all by myself. She went off, started baking the bread. And after time, the animals in the barnyard started sniffing the air, said, what is that smell? Something is smelling real good. And they said, well, didn't Mrs. Chicken say she's going to bake some bread today? They said, she sure did. Let's go over there and uh, see what's going on. So they walk over to the little chicken coop. And here enough, sure enough, out of the chicken coop comes Mrs. Chicken. She got two loaves of steaming hot bread. It's smelling so good. And all the animals said, mm-mm, that bread smells good. Can we have some? She said, no, I think I'm going to eat this bread all by myself. Now, that's where the story stopped when my mother told it to me. But as I watched Detroit develop and the quote-unquote comeback of Detroit and it's analogous to a rise of Detroit, back when we started, back when everybody was saying, last when Detroit turned out the lights, back during the bankruptcy, back when we had people getting in trouble in the elected office, back when uh, you know, we were the worst this, the worst that, and there's no future for Detroit, there were some people who hung out, hung in the neighborhoods. They kept trying to raise their kids. They kept trying to take care of the seniors. They kept trying to hold the economy together. While all the folks were leaning and said, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? So they hung in there, mm -hmm. and they were really baking bread. When other folks wouldn't want to help, other folks couldn't see it. They were in there baking bread, and they said, we're going to hang in here. We're going to bake this bread. We're going to make this city work. So after time, what happens? Some investors, they come they start, oh, what's going on in Detroit? They start putting some dollars in here. Dan Gilbert starts putting dollars in there. Uh, 
uh, Warren Buffett starts talking about Detroit. Uh, Meyer comes into Detroit. The creative class comes into Detroit. And then what? All these people are starting to smell bread that these folks in these neighborhoods were baking all this time. They have always baked the bread. They didn't bake the bread because of a poll. They mm -hmm. didn't break the bread because of a survey. They didn't bake the bread because it was popular. They baked the bread because it was the right thing to do. And you're seeing the fruits of that now. But there's something, and we want everybody come on in, come in with all we got. But let us not forget, and let us always hold up and lift up the folks who have always baked the bread. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, people that have been here, and that's that's the story that I that I have. I I, I enjoy being over here, um, in my own neighborhood. It's so much more fun, and I've been in other places. Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of those people that even when I travel, I can't wait to get back to Detroit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's a it's like a a, a, a a ethos, a culture, a comfortability yeah. that I have here right. that I don't get in other places. Though yeah. uh, the reality uh, is for a lot of people, and I, I get into this discussion, the opportunities that exist, especially for young black people, mm -hmm. uh, is not as abundant in places like. Um, Houston, Dallas, uh, D.C., uh, Oakland, uh, New York, Atlanta, um, the the that 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 those opportunities and the access to opportunities due to uh, we still have such a strong racial thing going on in this region altogether. Like it's almost like a invisible lines or something like it's a sundown city or something. It's It's weird. Like this whole region is so. Race plays such a role in so many of the things. I, I agree, but the, you know the only way to change that, Kyrie, mm -hmm. and I've seen young people and young people coming back to Detroit, is that you can't change it by running away from it. Mm -hmm. And so you got to be somebody, and and I think you're an example of that. You got to be somebody who's willing to take the bull by the horns, uh, speak truth to power, mm -hmm. and and make a way. It got to be some people like that. You know, you know. Martin Luther King didn't happen because it was easy. Malcolm X didn't happen because it was easy. Rosa Parks didn't happen because it was easy. They took mm -hmm. the bull by the horns, and I got to believe that we had some warriors out here, young men, young mm -hmm. women, and I would humbly submit that that's a narrative that we've got to change, and as we get people in, that, and I know there are examples. You do too. Young people doing incredible things. Young yeah. black people doing Most incredible definitely. things in Detroit. So we've got to tell those stories Most and encourage definitely. other folks because that's how we change it. Like, and uh, my my daughter, you know, Erin, who who's who's now in D.C. and lived there eight years, and is interested in coming back to Detroit. And she's she put together uh, some ideas about getting people and did her own little survey and about coming back to Detroit. And and mm -hmm. some people say exactly what you said: go back to Detroit. Are you crazy? I would never go there. But other folks like you. Mm -hmm. Feel that ethos about yeah, Detroit. Yeah, that yeah. thing is part of me. So. People can make their own decisions, but we aren't going to change it by not challenging it. And so what I would humbly submit, if I was young like you or other mm -hmm. folks, I'd say, yeah, let's, let's, let's go ahead and let's do our thing in Detroit. There's opportunity. Let's create the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Kyrie, what you've done here with Detroit is different, if I may say so. I know this is your show, but I'm going to say this. Oh, man. What you have done here is a great example of a young person 
defining themselves and not let somebody else define them. And I know it hasn't been easy. I know, you know, you got bills to pay and all the other yeah. stuff that goes with that. But you have said, you have not let that intimidate you. Mm-hmm. You said, I am doing this. Mm-hmm. I am doing this. And I, and I think you've just scratched the surface. Having been in the studio for the first time, and, there, and I know you before, but mm-hmm. I didn't know the extent of what you were, were putting together. And I think you as a young person now are, can be such a role model to so many other young people because they would say, well, but look what Kyrie's turn doing. How, how, how's he, Frazier's doing. How is he able to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, so I do agree. There's some folks, but I do think that we can change that narrative. I think it's in the process of change. It just takes time. I like, and uh, we, I like that. I like, yeah. I like already what you're saying. Like, mm-hmm. I look to people, I look up to people like you, um, like it, it's a lot of big homies that I got along this that I have real relationships right. with. So like, and it's, it's weird. Like so many of them have passed on, like, you mm-hmm. know, my mom, uh, Orthea Barnes, Eleanor mm. Josaitis, Shokwe right. Lumumba. Oh man. Uh, great, great people. You, um, and, and then even just looking back at, uh, some of the stories like with, with Reverend Sampson, uh, Tyree Guyton. Yeah. Um, it's like a mix of these people that I look up to and I hear these stories. And then I, now I hear stories about your dad and I'm, I'm very interested in like how they, cause, cause just knowing the dynamics of organizations and people right, and everything right, like right, that, right, like right. pulling something together like that in the fifties right. to take right. place on the campus of Wayne state. Like right. I'm amazed because yeah. this may be hard to pull that off yeah. today right. on Wayne state's campus right. as they're having questions about right. like, it should be right. more black people at Wayne state. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah exactly. You know, right. So yeah. that I'm amazed at like, yeah. It, you know, with as you said, it had to have been like a shoestring budget to be yeah, bringing yeah, in yeah. cardinals from Africa. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, you know, nothing happens, nothing happens, but you know, there is a process in mm-hmm. uh, everything, everything comes from somewhere, nothing just kind of pops uh-huh. out, you know. And uh, it's, um, you know, we're living in an amazing time, a challenging time, a heartbreaking time on a lot of different levels, but a time where <clears throat> we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if if we keep our eye on the prize and keep working, I often say, I know when Barack Obama uh, became president, I had uh, radio stations, TV stations calling me and said, Luther, you know, doesn't this prove that any dream is possible because Barack Obama is president? I said, well, yes and no, because Barack Obama did not dream his way to being president of the United States. He went to school, he studied, he has had the right associations worked his butt off, then he became president. He mm-hmm. didn't just dream it. And so you cannot, dreams are great, but dreams don't accomplish anything unless you execute your vision. That means work, that means passion. And sometimes that means like baseball. I was a baseball player. You know what? You know what they call a successful baseball player? Somebody who fails seven out of 10 times. Yeah, you got to get three. Hey. <laughs> three hits and hey, hey, you know what I'm saying? Hey, and hey, they call hey. that success. So you fail seven. What a business can Kirby. you fail seven times hey. if you call it? But, but that's kind of how business is, which kind of moves me, which moves me to your career in journalism. Yeah. As uh, I was even reading, and it's weird, like sometimes I know it's just a perspective and a tone, but like man like it's it's like this whole expose where the where the uh the news did like a 
according to the news journalist, which yeah. I believe is some truth in that, right, right. Uh, a year-long expose on the blood, seven-mile bloods and the gang culture throughout the east right. side of Detroit right. and the Instagram murders and everything. Right. And knowing some of these rappers and having a better understanding of it and even the whole concept of what a gang is, mm. I just think to even write that story, I'm not saying that a uh, a, a white journalist can't write that story. But it's just certain understandings that they're just not going to have a perspective of even getting into that are getting into some of these stories um, and journalism and, and how things are portrayed and messaging is plays a huge role, as we see even in this past presidential election oh, yeah. um, as a journalist. Let's let's just get into your journey as a journalist in Detroit. What what was that like coming on? Uh, on board when did you start and and what did you come to find uh, as a journalist looking at the lens of Detroit wow man that's a, that's a whole lot um well I actually the way I became interested in journalism I did not grow up with any interest in journalism at all mm. I actually majored in journalism because I was terrible at math when it got to uh, University of Detroit and the uh, instructor said well what do you want to major in I said I said business administration because it sounded so impressive and important. Like I was gonna have a big desk and run GM. He said, "Well, how good are you at math?" I said, "Terrible," because I couldn't pass algebra in high school. Uh -huh. I was terrible. I was a good writer, but I couldn't terrible at math. And I said, well, "And I said, well, what can, I said, what are you good?" At? I said, "Well, I've always got good grades, like writing and composition." I said, and I said, "Can I use that for anything?" They said, "Well, journalism. I, I'm not sure if I could even spell journalism." And I said, "Check that box for me." And that's how I majored <laughs> in journalism. <laughs> That is the that is the that is such a, true. such a young person uh, perspective of life. But sometimes life is like that when you're young. And what happened was, and a lot of people don't know this though, but I actually, through my late aunt Marie, who is the uh, oldest of the family, uh, my uncle Damon's sister and my father's sister, she worked for years and years down at uh, down at Hudson, and she had, she got me actually my first job uh, at Hudson's, mm. but my second job. I uh, applied for uh, to be a jumper loading trucks all through college. So I worked in the old Detroit News printing plant, which is on Lafayette. Now, the printing plant for the Detroit News at that time, we're talking about 1968, 69, 70, was in the basement of the Detroit News. The that basement. Means it was hot as hell. The basement. We loaded trucks. Wow, then we went out with the trucks. Now, tell you how God works. So, Kyrie, I. So when folks said they started at the bottom, I started in the basement, mm -hmm. literally in the basement. So here's how God works. By the time I left the Detroit News, that basement was the executive garage and I was parking in it. Mm. That's a true story. Yeah. I'm parking in my own parking spot in the executive garage. But uh, I had a, I, so I started as Detroit News as a general assignment reporter. Uh for about eight, nine months. And then they said, came to me and said, would, like you consider being a, would you consider being a sports writer? Now I like sports, but I didn't want to be no sports writer. Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, I thought I went home and told my mother and father, they think I'm dumb because only dummies write sports. I didn't want to write sports, but I said, okay, I'll do it. And so what happened, Kyrie, a lot of people don't know this, but 1973, I actually became the first black sports writer for the news or the free press. Wow. And I covered sports for five years. Tell you how I date myself. I covered Magic Johnson in high school. Yeah. 
I covered Tommy Hearns. In I was going to say, that's you know Tommy I was Hearns. about to ask about the hitman. Tommy Hearns. Uh, the hitman is my uh, password yeah, code. Yeah. Well, here's, here. the, here's a story quick, quickly on Tommy Hearns. Uh-huh. I was, a, City I was a low man on the totem pole at the sports department, so I had to work nights on Sundays. Uh-huh. And so I I, I would get start getting calls from this young boxing coach. He had an amateur boxing club with kids, and he would call and say, we were at a boxing tournament. We won some trophies. Would you put our scores in the paper? And I said, say, okay, I'll do this. So he would take kids to Kentucky or Ohio, and he'd call, and I would put their names in the paper. Mm. So so one day, you know, he invited me over to his house, and we were watching fight films. And uh, and uh, then one day he told me, he said, yeah, I've got this new kid. I'm bringing down to Detroit News for you to see. I think he's going to be really good. But long story short, the coach was Emmanuel Stewart and the kid was Tommy Hearns before mm. they were famous, before nobody knew anything about them, before, mm. they, before they hit the big time. And the one thing about Emmanuel Stewart, who was one of the nicest men in the world, when I saw him years later, he was a millionaire, he was world famous. He said, Luther, Everybody wants to write about me now. I, I got all this acclaim. But back then, when no one had no nothing, you took the time to put us in the paper. And he never forgot that. Mm. He never forgot that. And I use that to say that you never know where life's going to take folks. So be very careful how you treat people, how you talk to people, because you don't know how life is going to turn. Yeah, you, you got that right. Because, uh, yeah, that at, when Hearns beat Duran, it, everything changed. Right. You know, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Motor City Cobra. I mean, to this day, I, I was just in the um, in the Smithsonian African American Museum, and then in the boxing exhibit, it has a it has like that one shot where Hearns is like rocking Hagler. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow, yeah, I, this I, is I, amazing. Yeah, I was just there a couple <laughs> months ago. That's in, that museum is incredible. Yeah, I'm like it's a it's a it's a whole floor right. dedicated right. to um, black culture. Right, right, and, right. And, and in that floor, it's a shot of Hearns rocking, rock, it, it, like rocking yeah, Hagler. Right. And I was like, uh, I'm like, now nah, when you sit and watch this fight, <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing thing. You know, a, a lot of things are different. So, yeah, that was a unique time in, in yeah, sports. Yeah. So, like, from 73 to uh, all the way through, uh, you definitely were on the on the tail end. Even yeah, you right, did right, not get right, to uh, right. cover a, a winning Lions team. No, well, actually, because I got out of sports because what happened, I learned, unfortunately, I later mm-hmm. learned that the reason I ended up covering the public school league because some of the white sports writers, they didn't want to go out to the public schools. And they had mm. the, the young color kit, so they said, let's send him out here. Okay, but I was in sports for five years, and I ended up going to Lansing and being a legislative correspondent. I covered the governor race, I covered the economy, and uh, believe it or not, for somebody who couldn't pass algebra, they made me the lead correspondent. So I covered Wall Street and all the economic, the budget stuff. Mm. I did that for four years, and then I finally got a chance to come back to Detroit News and be an editor. Which again, I was the first black newsroom editor because there weren't any. And uh, I figured if I, they offered me the job, and I said if I say no, then they're gonna say, well, no, you, nobody black wants to be an editor. So I took the job, and along the way, I had a great time. I, you know, I became assistant managing editor. I was a senior, uh, senior editor, a columnist, wrote about a lot of stuff. Uh, got a chance to do a lot of, gr- a lot of great experiences in my journalism career. So, uh, and it really set me up to do all the things I'm doing with the Rise Detroit because. It made me understand that you know the media is the most powerful force on the planet, bar I, none. I, I, bar none. I agree, and that's that's a lot of why I have Detroit is different. Yeah, people kept saying, yeah. "Kari, you got all these opinions. You're on a soapbox." Blah 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 blah. And I'm right. like, "Yeah, I should just be making." Yeah, my the own media platform. is, the, and so 
And so that's why when I came up with the idea for Rise Troy, I said, you got to ground this in the media. The, as you do the work, people have to, uh, you have to have a communication. Every movement, drums, smoke signals, uh, the internet. He every <laughs> back then they had they used them. That's back, real old you know, school. That's but but what I'm saying is every movement has a communication medium to rally the troops. Everyone. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so of course it's today it's the internet, uh-huh. TV, radio. So, Arise Detroit. One of the things that made Arise Detroit what it is because we've had a concerted strategy to utilize media to tell positive stories about people and encourage people. When you see us on TV and read about us and listen to us on the radio, like now, that's motivate. You're connecting with people. You're motivating people. And that's what it takes to create a movement. Okay, and in creating this movement, uh, as a journalist, just a couple more questions I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm kind of jumping the gun, because along the way, when do you start picking up a guitar and saying, like, I love well, this blues? <laughs> well, there you go. I actually, you know, I didn't grow up playing music. I'd like to say I grew up playing two things, radio and baseball. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but um, for some reason, this is shortly after I went to Lansing in the early 1980s, I started buying blues records. I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. I never listened to blues. But it started speaking to you. And the first blues album I ever bought was by a guy named Luther Allison, as it turns out. Mm. And I started buying, and then I heard, I was in Lansing, I said that this guy, Luther Allison, was going to be playing down in Ann Arbor at a place called Rick's Cafe. Now, I had never mm. been to a blues show in my life, hmm. but I drove down there to see him. And this is crazy because you have family in Tennessee. Yeah, right. But yeah. but again, nobody, I had no interest in music. Nobody, I had mm-hmm. no musical role models at all. Mm-hmm. But I saw Luther Allison live, and it literally changed my life. I said, I want to, because he was playing the guitar and he had these students going nuts and he was bending the notes and getting these incredible sounds. I said, oh my God, how can he do that? And I said, that's what I want to learn how to do. I went to a pawn shop. I got a guitar. I was terrible for about 15 years, but I kept at it, <laughs> kept at it. And one day somebody said, I was going to a jam session down at the soup kitchen alone, and somebody said, Luther, you're starting to sound kind of good, man. You should put a band together and, uh, and put out a CD and, uh, that's what I did. My first CD came out in 1999. Mm-hmm. I've done four now. And uh, lo and behold, people started to like it. And I started getting, then I got an offer, believe it or not, to go to Belgium. A guy mm-hmm. heard my music. So he paid for me in 2000. He paid for me and my band to go to Belgium. I played in Brussels. I played in Antwerp. Uh, I was able to take my wife and daughter with me. I was going to say, <laughs> that, that was the next question I got. Because like when you take on something new yeah. as an adult, I don't know if you were married or dating at the time, but like when you when you talk to your social circle about yeah, it, yeah. I know they start looking at you. Well, like, I was huh? not playing music when, when I married my wife, but, you know. Okay, so when you took it on, what what did she say? She was just like, well, okay. she 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 was, well, to be honest, at one point she looked right at me and said, what are you doing? You can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> She just See, said, sometimes, she sometimes, just sometimes, said. Even, sometimes even the people closest to you she may said, not see the vision. She said, "She said you cannot sing." Yeah, and I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that. I'm not really a singer now, but I'm a scuffler. Is what I am. But nevertheless, but but here's the thing, Carrie. Uh-huh. Once we had an offer for me to go to Belgium, and we were in Belgium, and she was in Belgium keep with on me. Singing. <laughs> she keep said, on "She said I like this." <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> hey, that's that's a point to say. Sometimes people closest to you, that they, yeah. they, they may not see it. Yeah, but uh, but you know? but what happened was when I, when I came back to Detroit, even though I was a beginner, people uh-huh. said like, "Well, Luther's been to Belgium, man. He he must be good." And Doing I, something. I started getting booked to play places. Uh huh. And I'm still basically a beginner, but uh, 
one thing led to another and um you know I've, i i really enjoy quite it's not a full-time job yet i've been able to play in some great venues you know i put out my own original music i play in uh uh, you know, as I know, I'm playing uh, this Saturday at Tony V's Tavern in Detroit. Yeah, we're and, gonna we're gonna uh, keep going. Yeah, uh, yeah, but uh, but but it's been a great journey. And uh, if someone told me that I would be playing music and getting paid, I would say you were out of your mind. Not last Fridays, last Fridays, Saturdays. It's last Saturdays. Yes, okay, I'm about to mess this up myself. Okay, so we're gonna be rocking all right. the time, right. going and going and going and going. Right. Um. I. I. I just like the the mix of Paul Miles. Paul Miles is uh um, yeah great bluesman is uh somebody that was like yeah Luther should be uh down with something like this and we are already yeah. in music so let's just yeah. keep going there. Yeah. So your music journey. Um, picking up the guitar to to traveling the world with it. Uh, mm -hmm. What's the uh, what's your take on creativity? As I love blues myself, yeah, just it's the it's the emotion of it because to is, me, it blues is, is about you know the feel way the, more than it, anything it's, else. It's the essence, of, you know. And I I don't judge the music; all of it is good. I think there's something primal about blues, and it's a music that has really changed the world. When you figure that this music, though there's some European elements, but essentially the guts of blues comes out of those cotton fields and those rhythms out of Africa. And uh, even Carlos Santana, when he, I saw an interview and they asked him, how would you describe your music? He says, my music is African music. And uh, those notes, if you break down the musical theory of blues, it's and you know, without the blues, you, literally, you cannot have the Rolling Stones. You cannot have Led Zeppelin. You cannot have uh, all these other rock groups that have mm -hmm. built their music out of that blues genre, which you separate the notes. When you watch guys in rock play solos for the most part, they're playing blues notes. Mm -hmm. A lot of cases, of course, it's classical, but a lot of these, Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, all, I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan did blues for a minute. Oh, yeah, and and, and those are all blues guys. Yeah, even yeah, even yeah. Clapton, they, they acknowledge that. So... It's a it's a it's a mute art form that literally has changed the world, and a lot of people don't it's only associate it with oh woe is me my baby left me now that's an element of it but blues are um, you play blues to get you through the blues not to have more blues. Kari, if somebody comes see me at my show and they say Luther I had a great time, uh, I feel so depressed. That ain't what you want to say. You say, I feel like I can take on the world because I heard this music. That's what blues does for people. It gets it pushes them through the bad times and mm -hmm. lifts their good times. And uh, when we talk about pushing through and lifting good times, uh, the the band that you're bringing together this Saturday uh, coming up. Right. What's the uh, who you playing with? Uh, okay. How long you been playing with yeah, them? And okay. uh, yeah, these guys are they're all they're all fantastic musicians. Uh, Mickey Atkins is my keyboard player. We've been together about seven or eight years now. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the first keyboard player for Parliament Funkadelic. If you mm. do your history, so and. Uh, so he's a great player. Uh, he also can do some great Motown. Mm. My drummer is a guy named Rick Goo, who's been playing for years. And then my bass player is Jerome Yancey. Who's, all these guys are very well pedigreed musically. Uh, so in our show, we do blues. We do blues classics, but we do some of my, my original music. Mm. We put in some Motown. Uh, Rick can do some James Brown. So we can give folks, we can come at it a lot of different ways. We can give you old-fashioned rock and roll with Chuck Berry. Mm -hmm. You know, we can give you some B.B. King, some Albert King, some Muddy Waters. Uh, we come at it all kinds of different angles. Try to keep it fun, keep it dancing, keep it grooving. Make you smile mm -hmm. and uh, make you want some more. And so, uh, and it's funny, Kyrie, because... 
when I started playing music, I didn't really tell people at the newspaper or other folks. So it was like I was living in two worlds. Mm -hmm. And so I really, cause I really wasn't that good. So, but now my worlds have kind of emerged. So I can be in a story anywhere. And somebody will say, hey, you're the blues guy. You Then somebody else will see me who doesn't know nothing about the blues and say, oh, you're the community guy at Rise Detroit. So, <laughs> so it just depends on, you know. Where and, you at? Yeah, you know, but uh, but the music helps balance you out. I had a saying, but I think it's Nietzsche or somebody is saying, without music, life would be stupid. And as bad as life is, just take music. Let's eliminate music from the world. Mm -hmm. Eliminate all the music you've ever heard and say it didn't exist and you had to grow up with no music. <clears throat> What would that be like? I, I love music as I think my life is a soundtrack. I try yeah, there to find you go. a song for everything. There you go. And uh you you and uh and and I like the energy of the live show. So it's weird. Sometimes yeah. when I see a live show, it's all about energy. Yeah. You definitely have a good rapport. Uh I was so glad to do uh the the I guess they call it bar night, which will yeah. be a consistent thing right. with you and Thornetta. Right. right. Cause right. we had a lot of fun this past right. year. Right. But right. still one of my favorite shows was you and Paul. Uh, where was that at? In the in the River Town? Yeah, River yeah, Town, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Towers or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and I'm like, I swear to God, this place is not even really big enough to hold. Uh, hey, yeah, just me and Paul. Guess, but it was yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, we, Paul's a great. He's in Europe, man, but he's a great guy. And uh, we wrote a song together. A song I wrote called uh, "Talking Old Blues Man." It's all about two old bluesmen talking about mm -hmm. growing, you know their lives playing the blues. But Paul's a great guy, and uh. What, what great thing about music, uh, Kyrie, what it's done, it literally changed my life. I met so many great people through music. And music can really be something that brings people together. Because when you sit down to hear music, most folks will say, you like that, I like that, can I buy you a beer? They don't care about how much money you make. They don't care about your politics. They don't care about none of this stuff. We like the music. The music, and if we could capture that feeling on other levels mm -hmm. and understand that we have so much more in common for than for us to be debating and fighting about so much stuff in the world today i think we'd be a lot better off so you know when i go to play music you know i i get a high out of that i get a high out of the people and the smiles and great energy and great fun and um and 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 people, even though they don't play an instrument, they're just as so much a part of the music as the people the people playing the instruments because mm -hmm. that energy elevates the performers and excites the performers. And uh, so, the crowd is very much a part of that show. Oh yeah. And uh, I've, I unfortunately I've had the occasion to play in some situations where there are like three people in a whole bar. <laughs> yeah. And that's very challenging. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know what's crazy about that? I, I always tell like young performers, I like sometimes, I mean, the bad part is I generally self-produce most of my own shows, but I actually would rather lose on a self-produced show then nothing's worse than like when somebody pays me and for whatever reason the crowd doesn't show. Yeah. I mean, there's many yeah. variables. And then it's yeah. like, damn, man. Yeah, right. But uh, I actually, the shows where it's fewer people are the shows where I end up with fans that stick with me for forever. Because yeah. if I keep them there, it's like a, such more of an intimate like right. connection. I, I was doing the Metro Times blowout. I think now they call it the, the Hamtramck Music Fest. Right, right. I had like the last spot on like a Tuesday night one time. Uh, just said like some off bar mm -hmm. on Hamtramck off uh, Conant. Uh -huh. And... Um, and I swear it was only six people in the bar and I had a 45 minute set. And I, uh -huh. I told my DJ, I was like, let me see if I can uh, keep these people here because nothing in my life would ever stay here. 
right, right. You know, and it was nothing but guy. It was like no women there. Right, or just right. I, I, I'm like, I would leave immediately. Right, right. But we stayed. We had fun. Like, I think to this day, it was my best show. Really? Yeah, because I was just like intent on like, yeah. let's see if I can keep right. these people here. It was, it, it's a different energy. And well, all makes, of those people it, it to this you, day, it, it, stay with me. It makes you stronger. I can tell you a story that back when I, again, when I was first getting into the blues, mm-hmm. Albert King from Detroit, and I don't know if you remember this, there's a place called Ethel's Cocktail Lounge back in the day on Finkel. And Albert King is a big star of the blues. Yeah. Big star. Yeah. Awesome. Matter of fact, first time I saw him play, I walked out because he was so awesome on the guitar. I said, I can never be good enough to play. Wow. But so he comes, from, he rolls up. He's got the big tour bus, Albert King. He's got a 16-piece band. And there are like about 20 people in Ethel's Cocktail Lounge for Albert King. Mm. And so he goes in there. He says, well, I don't. I don't really know what's going on in Detroit. He says, there's only a few people here, but I'm going to do my show like there's 500, and that's what he did. Yeah. He, he turned it out. I think mm-hmm. I think that's the the zone as a performer to always be in, whether it's right. five or right. 5,000. Right. Give a show that matters more. And then also the shows where it's more people, it's not even the same energy at the stage because right. they're concerned with like, oh, look at her or look at him or, yeah, or yeah, let me, you know, yeah, let me right, get right. this drink. Or, right, right. Can I get to the bathroom? Yeah, or is my yeah, car yeah, going to be okay? Right, like right, yeah. it's so many other things in people's mind, especially in the cell phone culture nowadays. Right, 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 right exactly. Like when you can look at the person and yeah, see yeah, if they're yeah, on Instagram, yeah, it's right, different. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. But, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's a great, um, it's a great joy in it. Yeah, and, I, yeah. I, and I look, I look forward to it. Um, you know, and I want to thank you for you know you're reaching out and allowing me some a forum to oh, do some keep, of that. You, you you hit me up. Uh, you you in a rare air of like big homies. Like okay. I'm like I'm like yeah. You call every time you want to do something. Okay. I always like yeah, man. I'm, I'm gonna say yes, Luther. Okay. Like I'm gonna okay. say no to Luther Keith. Like it has to be. I have to be booked or well, something like that. It's well, like you do too much. Well, to the, ever say no to. Well, I do appreciate. It. It's funny because whenever I go out, people, it's got to the point where. People always ask me, Luther, where, where are you playing next? Where are you playing? You never want to say, well, I don't have a show. Hey, that's you always want to yeah, say, I, I got a show coming up somewhere. Like, what is your birthday party? I'll <laughs> yeah, play that. That's we'll, right. We'll see. I'll show up at right, your career. Right, like, right. <laughs> so uh, we'll keep this thing rolling. Uh, we're going to uh, – it's uh, the the Blues Bourbon and the Badman, Luther Keith, Luther Badman Keith. How did you get that name? How did you get that well, title? Well, the story well, – this is back at uh, – 1998, I believe, uh, I was still doing the jam session at the Soup Kitchen Saloon, still just learning how to play. And uh, I wrote a song, my first blues song I ever wrote was a song called Barbecue Baby, which is still one of my most popular songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I, did, I was playing at the end of the song, and people were clapping, and my drummer, whose name is Milton Heavyfoot Austin, uh, at the time, is still a good friend of mine, he said... Get up for him, y'all. Because people were saying, get up for him, y'all. He's a bad man. He's a bad man, like the old Muhammad Ali clip. Yeah. And I, Because at the time, I was saying, Luther Keith, if I'm going to play blues, I got to have a name. I can't just be Luther Keith. So I, he said, he's a bad man. I said, Luther Batman Keith. I, I think I like that. And I just claimed it. <laughs> Luther okay. Batman Keith. And there made myself. Go. And it was just then. I'm there just, you go. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like if you ever coin that, he, he'll he deserve like like some royalties from the yeah, yeah, from right, said right. name. <laughs> so in, in some ways, in some ways, it puts pressure on you because say, oh, you, you better you better be able to play. You can call yourself a bad man. I'm sick to see something. Uh-huh. So, you know, but uh, it's stuck in a lot of people. A lot of people, I, they'll call me Batman before they call me Luther. I go some places and they'll say Batman. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I went, I went to uh, 
the a theater with my wife in. You know how the lot of lights are down, mm-hmm. and the lights came up, and this lady was sitting next to me. She took a look at me. She said, "You're the bad man." Like hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious. Of things for another woman to say to you when when you're with your wife. It's yeah, like, right. Hey, well, hey, well, fortunately, hey. there wasn't any implication in that. It was just acknowledgement that she had been to see me play someplace. <laughs> but uh, wasn't nothing going on. But uh, as in blues, as in blues, right, right, right. <laughs> but it's but it's been it's been fun, man. And I I have a ball playing music, and I I do it every day if I could. So uh, as we wrap up uh, this interview, it's just like some short, short questions I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, classic Detroit is different questions. But before we get to that, um, I do want to give you an opportunity to to share uh, how people get in contact with you. What's up? What's coming up next other okay. than the show? Like what's okay. uh, what's in the world of Luther Keith? Okay, well, you can contact me. My website is badmanbluz.com or you can email me at... Uh, Badman at BadmanBLUZ.com. And uh, I post all my shows on my website. Also, um, under Luther Keith on Facebook. You know, I do have uh, these three great shows that you've lined up for me for the last Saturday of uh, April, May, and June at uh, Tommy V's Tab, Tony V's Tavern, mm-hmm. uh, the old Alvins. And I do have a show scheduled for May 24th. I'll be doing Baker's Keyboard Lounge. That's a Thursday night Okay, from uh, 8 to midnight. I've got that coming up. And, uh, you know, I've been writing some new songs, flirting with the idea that I might be putting out some new music, you know, in maybe at the end of the year. I've got some new songs I've written that uh, I'm trying to figure out if they're, pre- if they're good enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities to share my music with people. You know, we've done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, special events. Uh, I've done weddings. I've done special events for people looking for entertainment. Uh, you know, and i got some great musicians that love to give people a great show. Okay. All right. Uh, so here are the classic Detroit is different questions. First question. Uh, what was your very first car? Uh, what year make and model was the car and what year did you get it? A 1972 Chevy Vega. Ah, man. A tan. Okay. <laughs> and I got it that year. My first car. Yes. Okay. What was the first place you drove to when you got it? Home. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can remember. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so next question. Uh, you're a DJ. It is the end of the fireworks. You're at Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs. What three songs are you playing for the people? Wow. What a question. I'm playing uh, Celebrate. Okay, cool in the game. That that actually is on certain people's <laughs> list. That that song gets I'm picked. I'm playing celebrate. I'm playing uh uh I'm playing this is gonna shock you. I'm playing Quarter Man by Salt and Pepper. I like okay. that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I'm playing um uh, I am playing I'm playing the song What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Okay, great, great selection. Great selections of songs. Uh, and very last question. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Rename Woodward? Yep. After one Detroiter. I'm, you, know, you know, you have the usual suspects, of course. Whew. I would name it. I would name it. 
I would name it Viola Liuzzo Boulevard. For Viola Liuzzo. Okay, I don't even know the story. Please share. Well, Viola Liuzzo was a white woman who went down south from Detroit, mm -hmm. who went down south to work with the Freedom Riders and the, and the people who were advocating for black voter registration. Mm -hmm. She got shot and killed. Mm. She was killed on behalf of civil rights for black folks. Mm -hmm. Her family thinks she'll have family in Detroit. There's a park for her in Northwest Detroit in her name. But if you Google the name Viola Liuzzo, mm -hmm. she sacrificed her life. And it may not be the top of it because most folks are going to pick Rosa Parks or Joe Lewis. And oh, they're all deserving. But I think the way Viola Liuzzo sacrificed her life for us, with us, is emblematic of what we need to bring folks together. Mm -hmm. And it's not about color, it's about the humanity of all of us. And we can get to that. Mm -hmm. The world will be a far better place. I'm gonna, uh, got some more studying to do. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna find out more about that story, but as always, it's great catching up with you. You dropping gems in history of everything as uh, this was a great, great interview. Thanks, Kari. Thanks for the opportunity and I look forward to more. Thank you. Blues and the Bad Man, Saturday, April 29th at Tony V's Tavern. Come enjoy the blues style of Luther Badman Keith and his band. Bourbon Blues and the Bad Man is a show produced by Detroit is Different. Tickets are $15 and two for $20. Limited seating. Buy your tickets today at www.detroitisdifferent.com. Tony V's is located at 5756 Cass Avenue, Detroit's Wayne State University District.
Because along the way, when do you start picking up a guitar and saying, like, I love well, this blues? <laughs> well, there you go. I actually, you know, I didn't grow up playing music. I'd like to say I grew up playing two things, radio and baseball. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but um, for some reason, this is shortly after I went to the Lansing in the early 1980s, I started buying blues records. I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. I never listened to blues. But it started speaking to you. And the first blues album I ever bought was by a guy named Luther Allison, as it turns out. Mm. And I started buying, and then I heard, I was in Lansing, I said that this guy, Luther Allison, was going to be playing down in Ann Arbor at a place called Rick's Cafe. Now, I had never mm. been to a blues show in my life, hmm. but I drove down there to see him. And this is crazy because you have family in Tennessee. Yeah, right. But yeah. but again, nobody, I had no interest in music. Nobody, I had mm-hmm. no musical role models at all. Mm-hmm. But I saw Luther Allison live, and it literally changed my life. I said, I want to le- – because he was playing the guitar, and he had these students going nuts, and he was bending the notes and getting these incredible sounds. I said, oh, my God, how can he do that? And I said, that's what I want to learn how to do. I went to a pawn shop. I got a guitar. I was terrible for about 15 years, but I kept <laughs> at it, kept at it. And one day somebody said – I was going to a jam session down at the soup kitchen of Loon, and somebody said, Luther, you're starting to sound kind of good, man. You should put a band together. And uh, and put out a CD, and uh, that's what I did. My first CD came out in 1999. Mm-hmm. I've done four now, and uh, lo and behold, people started to like it, and I started getting. Then I got an offer, believe it or not, to go to Belgium. A guy mm-hmm. heard my music, so he paid for me in 2000. He paid for me and my band to go to Belgium. I played in Brussels. I played in Antwerp. Uh, I was able to take my wife and daughter with me. I was gonna say that, that was the next question I got because, like, when you take on something new yeah. as an adult, I don't know if you were married or dating at the time, but like when you when you talk to your social circle about yeah, it, yeah. I know they start looking at you. Well, like, I was huh? not playing music when when I married my wife, but you know. Okay, so when you took it on, what what did she say? She was just like, well, okay. she 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 was. Well, to be honest, at one point she looked right at me and said, "What are you doing? You can't sing." <laughs> <laughs> She just See, said, sometimes, she sometimes, just sometimes, said, even, sometimes even the people closest to you she may said, not see the vision. She said, "She said you cannot sing." Yeah, and I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that. I'm not really a singer now, but I'm a scuffler. Is what I am. But nevertheless, but but here's the thing, Carrie. Uh-huh. Once we had an offer. For me to go to Belgium, and we were in Belgium, and she was in Belgium keep with on me. Singing. Keep, she keep said, on "She said I like this." <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> hey, that's that's a point to say. Sometimes people closest to you, that yeah, they, they may not see it. Yeah, but uh, but you know? but what happened was when I, when I came back to Detroit, even though I was a beginner, people uh-huh. said like, "Well, Luther's been to Belgium, man. He he must be good." And Doing I, something. I started getting booked to play places. Uh huh. And I'm still basically a beginner, but uh. One thing led to another, and, um, you know, I, I I really enjoy it. It's not a full-time job yet. I've been able to play in some great venues. You know, I put out my own original music. I play in, uh, uh, you know, as I know, I'm playing uh, this Saturday at Tony V's Tavern in Detroit. Yeah, we're going to keep going. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, uh, but, but it's been a great journey, and... Uh, if someone told me that I would be playing music and getting paid, I would have said you were out of your mind. No, last Fridays. Last Fridays. Saturdays. It's last Saturdays. Yes, got, <laughs> okay, I'm about to mess this up myself. Okay, so we're going to be rocking all right. the time, right. going and going and going and going. Right. Um, I I I just like the, the mix of Paul Miles. Paul Miles is uh um, Yeah, great blues man. Is uh somebody that was like, Yeah, Luther should be uh down with something like this. And we are already mm. in music, so let's just yeah. keep going there. Yeah. So your music journey, 
um, picking up the guitar to to traveling the world with it. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's your take on creativity? As I love blues myself, yeah, just it's the it's the emotion of it because it, it is blues it is. is about you know the feel it's way the, more than it, everything it's, else. It's the essence, you know, and I I don't judge the music. All of it is good. I think there's something primal about blues, and it's a music that has literally changed the world. When you figure that this music, though there's some European elements, but essentially the guts of blues comes out of those cotton fields and those rhythms out of Africa. And uh, even Carlos Santana, when he, I saw an interview and they asked him, how would you describe your music? He says, my music is African music. And uh, those notes, if you break down the musical theory of blues, it's and you know, without the blues, you, literally, you cannot have the Rolling Stones. You cannot have Led Zeppelin. You cannot have uh, all these other rock groups that have mm-hmm. built their music out of that blues genre, which you separate the notes. When you watch guys in rock play solos for the most part, they're playing blues notes. Mm-hmm. A lot of cases, of course, it's classical, but a lot of these, Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, all, I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan did blues for a minute. Oh, yeah, and and, and those are all blues guys. Yeah, even yeah, even yeah. Clapton, they all they acknowledge that. So... It's a it's a it's a mute art form that literally has changed the world, and a lot of people don't it's only associate it with oh woe is me my baby left me. Now that's an element of it, but blues are um, you play blues to get you through the blues, not to have more blues. Kari, if somebody comes see me at my show and they say Luther, I had a great time, uh, I feel so depressed. That ain't what you want to say. You say, I feel like I can take on the world because I heard this music. That's what blues does for people. It gets it pushes them through the bad times and mm-hmm. lifts their good times. And uh, when we talk about pushing through and lifting good times, uh, the the band that you're bringing together this Saturday uh, coming up. Right. What's the uh, who you playing with? Uh, okay. How long you been playing with yeah, them? And okay. uh, yeah, these guys are they're all they're all fantastic musicians. Uh, Mickey Atkins, my keyboard player. We've been together about seven or eight years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the first keyboard player for Parliament Funkadelic. If you mm. do your history, so and. Uh, so he's a great player. Uh, he also can do some great Motown. Mm. My drummer is a guy named Rick Goo, who's been playing for years. And then my bass player is Jerome Yancey. Who's, all these guys are very well pedigreed musically. Uh, so in our show, we do blues. We do blues classics, but we do some of my, my original music. Mm. We put in some Motown. Uh, Rick can do some James Brown. So we can give folks, we can come at it a lot of different ways. We can give you old-fashioned rock and roll with Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. You know, we can give you some B.B. King, some Albert King, some Muddy Waters. Uh, we come at it all kinds of different angles. Kind of keep it fun, keep it dancing, keep it grooving. Make you smile mm-hmm. and uh, make you want some more. And so, uh, and it's funny, Kyrie, because... When I started playing music, I didn't really tell people at the newspaper or other folks. So it was like I was living in two worlds. Mm-hmm. And so I really cause I really wasn't that good. So, But now my worlds have kind of emerged. So I can be in a story anywhere. And somebody will say, hey, you're the blues guy. You Then somebody else will see me who doesn't know nothing about the blues and say, oh, you're the community guy at Rise Detroit. So, <laughs> so it just depends on, you know. Where you at? Yeah.
my parents my father was a postal clerk and uh my my though he was involved in a lot of civil rights uh, social type of stuff he ran a a black history program at the time called Nis negro history a program called negro the negro history committee you know those type of things then then my father you know I was only 23 when he passed, so we mm. never had a type of relationship where I like hung out with my father, yeah. you know. But uh, the time I had with him and the lessons that he taught me uh, have always stayed with me. And what he, what he, among many things he told me is that one of the things that stuck and it may resonate today. He said, "But he said the black, or as he said at the time, the color man. You said you're color man. You can't be successful just for you. You have to be." successful for other people and bring other people with you hmm. and not only that he said you have to be twice as good as other, those other folks so you've got to be the best at whatever you do and I've tried to instill that as I've moved along and taught journalism and recruited young people for careers in the media I say you have got to be the best be so good they could say I can't stand Kyrie Frazier, but doggone it, he's the best writer we got. Nothing we can do about it. Okay, and as you talk about that, you said he was doing something with uh, Negro history at the time. Yes, yes. He, he, and this kind of thing, Kyrie, where you don't appreciate it when you're that young. But this is back in the 50s now. Mm -hmm. Black history wasn't that popular. We didn't have, no. you know, and it was called Negro History Week, but somehow yeah, my father. Carter G. Woodson my, started with yeah, the week. Right, and my, now it's right, expanded right. To my father uh, was a converted Catholic, and so. So he got interested in, at the time, Negro History Week, and he would hold these programs every February at the McGregor Conference Center at Wayne State. So I grew hmm. up with this. And he would invite dignitaries, a lot of time from uh, clerics from Africa, from various countries in Africa, wow. to come here. And he would have the dignitaries from all over the United States, he and his committee, to do these programs on Negro History Week. He had Benjamin Mays come. Are you he, serious? He had Carl Rowan come. Wow. He had he had people that I can't even tell you who were coming. This is back when it was not popular. Mm. It was not the thing. And we just kind of took it for granted. And so, when, so some of a lot of what you're doing right now with Arise Detroit, you've, you witnessed yeah, the possibilities I, yeah. of that. And, and not knowing what it would become. But I think in, in an indirect way, subliminally, it affected me. And I'll tell you one story. That I that is that kind of resonates with me, and because my father would bring these when he passed, I go through his papers. I find letters from bishops in Africa, priests in Africa, thanking him for this and that. This was, and one this is when I was about ten ten years old or so. He had invited a bishop from Africa, from the country at the time called Tanganyika, to come to our house for dinner. Hmm. Uh, his name was Bishop Rugamba. He invited him over. My mother cooked an old-fashioned soul food dinner, you know, with the greens, mm -hmm. chicken, fried corn. A year later, remember I went to Catholic schools. I went to St. Agnes. So about a year later in religion class, we are reading about the first African cardinal. So the nuns, we read about it, and I reading about it, and I raised my hand and said, Sister, sister, because his name is now Cardinal Lorne Rogamba. You like, hey, and I said, like and I said, and I said, sister, he was at our house. He ate dinner at <laughs> house, and the nun said, Luther Keith, Stop don't tell a lie like that in class. <laughs> I never will forget it. <laughs> and that's, and but of course, I didn't know that. And as I got older, mm -hmm. many people, just like Horace Sheffield Senior, 
who mm. you don't know, but his father and my father were friends. Wow, that that ran uh, way Daybo, back in, way back in the day, which we know uh, uh, Daybo, uh, a heck yeah, of an yeah, organization. Yeah, Ed, well, yeah, right. Ed Vaughn's father, Ed mm. Vaughn, who used to have the bookstore, who now yeah. lives down south. His father and my father had a connection back mm. in the day. So he was like from that generation. A lot of folks uh, worked with a lot of folks, and like, and see, he worked at the post office. And back in the fifties, black doctors, black lawyers, they couldn't get jobs. They worked at the post office. So he was working with these guys. They couldn't get real work. So these doctors and lawyers were working at the post office till they got their act together. And that's kind of, kind of what he grew up with. But but a lot of stuff I took for granted. So when I got older, uh, I would run into people and say, man, your father. I work with your father. Your father was a great. I, I didn't have a sense of that till I got much older. Wow. Now, as we talk about this, and this is kind of uh, you, you came in and and we were talking about uh, Reverend Sampson mm -hmm. uh, and Reverend Sampson had right. a program, uh, right. Frida, uh, right. my friends and right. I work with Frida right. uh, with the Black Coffee Podcast. Make right. sure you come out, support us on that. But May 19th is an event in honor of him. Mm -hmm. And we're always talking about his library. Right. What were some of the books your dad was reading? How was he getting this information about history? Well, sure. You know, I, I don't even know. I, I, I just know that he was very uh, he must have read. I don't know. I didn't see the books, but he was very learned, very knowledgeable. Hmm. And uh, educating himself through interactions with a lot of people. And um, it was just a passion that he had. And hmm. I don't know why, because, again, it was not popular. You know, Negro History Week and all that stuff mm -hmm. was not even popular. It was not even fashionable. But, you know, that's what we grew up with. And uh, it stuck with me. And indirectly, I think uh, it, it's rubbed off to me in a lot of ways that they've uh, exhibit themselves in my own life. Blues and the Bad Man, Saturday, April 29th at Tony V's Tavern. Come enjoy the blues style of Luther Badman Keith and his band. Bourbon Blues and the Bad Man is a show produced by Detroit Is Different. Tickets are $15 and two for $20. Limited seating. Buy your tickets today at www.detroitisdifferent.com. Tony V's is located at 5756 Cass Avenue in Detroit's Wayne State University District.